0: During the week, they don't really interact with the scriptures on their own. They come here on Sunday and they hear a sermon and it's like drinking a glass of milk and the usher has to burp them on the way out.
1: (laughs) Hello, and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We are in a three-part mini-series entitled Growing Up in Christ, in which Dr. Brogy from the book of Hebrews shows how believers are called to grow in their relationship with Christ. This week, we begin part two of this series in a message entitled A Warning Against Not Growing. Our text will be in Hebrews chapter six, but first let us rejoin Pastor Carl as he recaps the previous message, which he covered in Hebrews chapter five. Let's join Pastor Carl now.
0: Last week, we started the subject of spiritual growth. You know, this is, in one sense, I suppose, a continuation of the subject of spiritual gifts because to find your spiritual gift, you have to grow. It's like a newborn. You can hold them, but you don't know what their talents or skills or proclivities are until they begin to mature. The same is true in the spiritual realm. Some Christians have never really been able to identify specifically how God gifted them on the day of their conversion because they haven't grown much. And so, we are to grow up in the grace and knowledge of Christ. Now, last week, we spoke on the subject of perpetual infancy from the fifth chapter. You can see this morning's topic is a warning against not growing. And by the way, as we come to this section of Scripture, Hebrews chapter 6, especially the first eight verses, it's some of the most controversial texts in all of the Bible. So pay close attention. I want to begin reading in verse 1. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God, of instruction— about washings, and laying on of hands, and resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened, and have tasted of the heavenly gift, and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God, and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucified themselves the Son of God, to put, in, put him to open shame. For ground that drinks the rain which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled receives a blessing from God, but it yields thorns and thistles. It is worthless. If it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless. Underscore that in your thinking. And close to being cursed... And it ends up being burned. When I went to seminary at the time, I considered it the best seminary in the nation that I could go to. The reason is because it was the only seminary in the world that you worked through all 66 books of the Bible over the course of four years. You had in-depth theological training, but also training in the languages of Hebrew and Greek. And their goal was not only to allow you to read the best commentaries, and most of those interact with the original language, but to equip you, and to train you, to actually be able to write a commentary. So when I studied this passage, in addition to my own study, I have 17 commentaries in the book of Hebrews. And virtually all of them are in agreement that this is probably the most difficult text in the book of Hebrews fact, one writer says of Hebrews 6, this passage is the naughtiest passage in Hebrews, if not the whole of the Bible. Another says the difficulty of interpretation cannot be exaggerated. Still another said this is known to be one of the most difficult chapters in the whole canon of Scripture. Unless you think this is a recent challenge in hermeneutics, Dr. R. W. Dale, 150 years ago, wrote these words, I know how this passage has made the heart of many a good man tremble. It rises up in the New Testament with a gloomy grandeur, stern, portentous, awful, sublime as Mount Sinai when the Lord descended upon it in fire. Some of these quotes express both the awe and the hesitancy with which commentators and expositors have when they approach this passage of Scripture. It's a difficult passage to understand, but it's not impossible. God gave us his word so we could understand it. But we have to apply ourselves, but I will say as you study it, you will find it sobering, it's frightening, it's almost terrifying. And your index level of the fear of God should be raised today unless you just have a hard, obstinate heart. Hebrews 6 sadly has been a cause of worrying concern for some who have misunderstood and misapplied this text of Scripture. Some have questioned whether or not they are really eternally secure in the faith. They've read this text and wondered, is it possible once you're saved to lose that salvation? Still others have concluded that they have lost their salvation and they could never be restored, that they've committed some unpardonable sin and could never be saved again. Now, while I would never want to give a false assurance to someone who professed Christ but didn't really know him, Neither would I want them to stumble and miss God's best in terms of assurance and the security that he wants us to know. But when you let all the air out of the balloon, basically there are three major positions on Hebrews, the sixth chapter. First, there are these who say that this represents someone who is saved and lost their salvation. The position that they take, though, is not consistent with not only the book of Hebrews itself, but the rest of the New Testament. A good principle of interpreting the Scripture, we call it hermeneutics, is you interpret what's unclear in light of what is very clear. And if you believe that the Holy Spirit inspired the whole of Scripture, which he did, then he inspired it without a single error, and there'll be no mistakes, errors, or contradictions. And therefore, any interpretation that goes against a clear text of Scripture should be considered as less than faithful. So you, inter- you interpret what is obscure in light of what is very, very obvious. And it's obvious in light of many, many passages That once you're saved, you are saved forever. And some of you have been with us in our Wednesday night series on basic discipleship. And we spent four weeks on the subject of assurance of salvation and eternal security. And we learned that there are over 150 passages in the New Testament that affirm we are secure. There's uh, about six, seven, eight, some that are repeated twice, that at first glance seem to appear that you could lose your salvation. And this is one of the most popular that people would appeal to. But we know it doesn't mean that. Let's give the writer of the Hebrews credit and that he is not contradicting himself. For instance, in Hebrews 7, if you turn over a page, in verse 23, and the former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, speaking of Jesus on the other hand, because he abides forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Hence, also, he, the Lord Jesus, is able, underscore, to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Likewise, in Hebrews 10 and verse 14, for by one offering he is perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Or Hebrews 13 and verse 5, let your character be free from the love of money, being content with what you have, for he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So, even within the book of Hebrews, it affirms the doctrine of eternal security that once you are saved, you are saved forever. But for those who teach that this passage says that you can lose your salvation, they're not consistent. Because many people who teach that, they say, well, but you can get saved again. You can be born and unborn, saved and lost, saved and lost. But this passage actually says more than they want it to say. Let me read verse 4 and verse 6 without the intervening clauses. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. So, in other words, if this verse is referring to a saved person who defected from the faith, the text says they cannot be restored. He's lost forever. If we believe once saved, always saved, then they ought to believe once lost, always lost. And I've met a few people who actually teach that position. There's a second position that's often held in reference to this text, and that he's not addressing saved people, but lost people. Lost people who came to the edge of salvation, but never stepped into the kingdom. People who may have even made a profession of faith, but never really a possession of Christ himself. And it's argued that they came under the convicting work of the Spirit of God, but ultimately, because they did not respond, they ended up rejecting Christ, and they lost their opportunity for all time. Now, there are some passages that affirm that, that a person, and it's only known to God, can reach a point because they have repeatedly, habitually said no to the Spirit of God. Jesus said in the parable of the sower, the seed is snatched, that the the, the devil snatches the seed that they may not believe and be saved. And of course, in a wholesale broad way, that's going to happen during the tribulation. God will send a deluding influence and people will believe a lie. Why? Because they did not love the truth so as to be saved. God alone knows who those people are. But I don't believe, and let me just say parenthetically in reference to that interpretation, I can appreciate it because they're trying to be biblically consistent. Since they affirm what God clearly says, eternal security, they therefore don't want to conclude that this is someone who is saved and was lost. So at least they're being consistent. The third position that is held by many great expositors is that this is a warning to people who are eternally secure, who've met Christ in salvation, but it's a very severe warning. We'll talk about what that warning is that they're in grave danger of reaching a point where they cannot come back. Now, don't forget the chapter and verse divisions are artificial, they're added almost 1,200 years after the Bible was completed. They're not inspired from God. Some have suggested they were added. God allowed it to happen to keep preachers like me from preaching too long. But while they are helpful, let me say they can be distracting. And if you start in Hebrews 6 and verse 1, and you miss the immediate context, then you'll misinterpret the passage. So if you're using your note-taking outline, you can see I've organized this section under three headings. And just by way of review, we want to start with the problem of not growing. We looked at that last week. And I want to refresh your mind and dust off your thinking in this realm, because if you miss what 5, 11 through 14 are teaching, you're going to miss chapter 6 altogether. So look at chapter 5 and verse 11. Concerning him, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need need milk and not solid food. Now, of course, when you read verse 11 concerning him, the careful thinker and reader will say concerning whom. And of course, if you've read chapter 5, then you know the hymn is in reference to this guy Melchizedek. He's just been mentioned in verse 6 and then again in verse 10. And if you go back and you read the first 10 verses of chapter 5, you will discover that he is referring to the Lord Jesus and the Melchizedekian priesthood. According to 511, the writer anticipated that it would be hard for him to explain these truths to the readers because they were slow to learn. And they were slow to learn because they had become dull of hearing. By this time, they should have been Christians long enough where he could teach them these truths such that they themselves could even be teachers. There should have been some people in the church, new in the faith, that could have even profited from their ministry. These older believers to new believers, but they weren't there. By this time, you ought to be able to learn algebra and trigonometry and calculus, but I'm going to teach you your numbers and I've got to teach you the multiplication tables all over again. By the way, this is, again, an incredibly practical portion of Scripture for the American church. And what's so unfortunate today is we have Christians in America who've been saved 20, 30, 40 years or more. We have congregations of gray-headed babies. People who ought to be wrapping their teeth around a good T-bone, but they're still on baby food and padlum and they're sucking a bottle. So, to help us to see if we're overgrown babies, he gives us four tests. The first of four tests is what I call the decibel test. They had failed the decibel test. Again here in verse 11, concerning him, Melchizedek, we have much to say and it is hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. It's hard. It's hard for you to pay attention. In fact, I've been preaching just long enough where some of you are beginning to drift. <laughs> You're really not listening. You're smiling. You're waving your head. The lights are on, but nobody's inside. And there's a lot of people like that. They're clock watchers. They say, gee whiz, I'm used to a 12 and a half minute sermon, and this preacher's not even out of the introduction barely. And the same attitude can be expressed in many other realms, in an adult Bible fellowship, in a Bible study, and a mark and a sign, though, that you're growing up is you're spiritually hungry. But people who don't have an ear to hear, their ears are plugged, they've not passed the decibel tests, are in trouble. So beyond the decibel tests, there's also, they had failed in the dependency tests. They had failed the dependency tests. A spiritually stunted believer is not only someone who is dull in his ability to hear spiritual truth, but he's dependent totally on others. Again, look at verse 12. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you've come to need milk and not solid food. He's talking about Christians who need a spiritual nursemaid, Christians who constantly need someone to hold the bottle for them. And they haven't matured enough where they can give out even a little to other people. So I would ask you again, as I asked last week, is there someone now that you're teaching? Someone now that you're able to help? Certainly, if you're a dad and mom and you have children at home, that's the starting place. But even beyond that, in the church, in the body of believers, maybe someone that you've introduced to Christ... And some of us, sadly, if we depended on you to grow the church and to fulfill the Great Commission, to win people to Jesus and help them to grow, we would be stale and dead. And that's why 75% of the churches in America are on the decline. 10,000 churches, according to the Wall Street Journal, will close in the next five years. Churches all across America are dying and sometimes, churches that have the gospel, gray-headed babies who can't help the first person, they pass, they failed the decibel test, they failed the dependency test, but notice they also failed the diet test. They failed the diet test. So, he speaks here about milk. He says, you've become dull of hearing, and the most they can get out of a sermon really is milk. During the week, they don't really interact with the scriptures on their own. They come here on Sunday and they hear a sermon and it's like drinking a glass of milk and the usher has to burp them on the way out. (laughs) Listen, if the only time you study the Bible is on Sunday mornings, you're weak. And you don't need to be there and you don't want to be there and I don't want you to be there as your pastor. You need to begin to learn. You need to begin to feed yourself. And so here's this preacher and he says, I've got much to say. I mean, there's so many truths I want to tell you. But he says, you've come to need milk. Did you see that? You've come to need milk. An infant does not come to need milk. He's born with the need to want to suck. But they had come to need milk because they had regressed into a second childhood. There are many people like that today. They're dull of hearing. We saw the word meant no push. It's used of the sluggard in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. No drive, no hunger. They've spoiled their spiritual appetite, and they've gone into a second childhood. Now, when he comes to verse 14, he applies another test. Beyond the dullness test and the dependency test and the diet test, they had failed the discernment test. They had failed the discernment test. Look at verses 13 and 14. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is a babe... But solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. So they lack discernment because they lack obedience. Children lack discernment. They'll put almost anything into their mouth. We were waiting several hours for a flight decades ago in an airport, and we had just one little one at the time, Jeremy, and he was about a year old, and he was crawling around on the floor, and we're watching him. The next thing we know, he grabs a dead roach, and he's ready to put it in his mouth. (laughs) See, that's what little babies will do. They'll put almost anything into their mouths, and that's what spiritual babies do. They can't discern good and evil. Now, let me just say this. Parents, you can't really help your children if you're not helping yourself. And unless you have discernment with your children, and I would say the same is true with grandparents. Oh, they want to watch such and such. Have you thought that through? Do you know that there's a whole philosophy and a message, say, behind that particular movie? Oh, just let them, they, 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 you know, they'll be happy. And some of us, because we haven't grown, we haven't spiritually exercised, we can't discern good from evil. And it's very sad, and so you have these Christians, and they, they watch these folks online, and they don't even know that they're heretics, but they, you know, they have a few verses that they baptize here and there, so it sounds good, and they listen to these teachers who are getting direct revelation from God, and they think, well, they must be super spiritual. God doesn't speak to me in that way where, you know, thus saith the Lord, and this is what I want you to do. No, that, that's, that's dangerous. That's far beyond what God has taught in Scripture. That is gross error. Those are typically false teachers or inflated believers. So we need discernment. We live in the last of the last days. I'm convinced of it. And there's a tsunami of evil that is sweeping our nation. And this culture wants to feed our children poison. And we need to know the difference. And so these Hebrew believers lacked discernment, not because they lacked information, but because they lacked obedience. You see that word trained? It's the word gumnazo. We get our word gymnasium from it. They were not gymnasticizing their senses to discern good and evil. Now, I took the time to go over that because the context here is very, very important to understanding Hebrews chapter 6. They had come to need milk. Why? Because they were not obeying what they know, and they lost their ability to discern. Now, that's the problem of not growing. Now, in the first three verses of chapter 6, let's think together about the solution to growing, the solution to not growing. What is the solution to not growing? So, God doesn't leave them hanging here. He provides the solution to their problem, and he exhorts them on three levels, and by application, all of us. First, to grow, we must be willing to pursue maturity. We must be willing to pursue maturity. Now you will notice the very first word of chapter 6 is the word, therefore. So you know right off, this is connected to what has previously been said. You always ask, what is the therefore, therefore? And contextually, it goes back to what we just studied in chapter 5. Who is he addressing in chapter 5, the lost or the saved? He's writing to saved people, and that's important. And so look carefully at his counsel here in verse 1. There are three phases that you want to think about. Therefore, leaving the elementary principles about the Christ, let us press on to maturity. So he first urges them to leave the elementary principles and to press on to maturity. You see that word maturity? It's, it's the Greek word teleos. It means full grown. It means mature. And it was an excellent translation in the 17th century when the King James rendered it perfection because it had a different nuance in that day. But he is not saying that anyone in this life can be sinlessly perfect. That will not happen until you are in your glorified body and God has completed your salvation. But nonetheless, he is speaking about a believer growing up and changing. And you will notice that the writer of the Hebrews includes himself in that, let us. So, unless you think that this book is being written by an unbeliever, then you might conclude that he's reading, he's he's addressing unbelievers, but he's not. Let us, himself included. He's addressing his brothers and sisters in Christ. And let me remind you, my brothers and sisters in Christ, if you are not growing, you're backsliding. God doesn't make you like a fence post stuck in the ground. He's made you like a tree that is planted, that is to grow and develop and to flourish. And if you're not growing, you're, 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 you're dying. You can't just stay neutral. And so, he says, let us go on to maturity, and it's an imperative, it's a command, it's not an option for the obedient Christian, and and it has a sense, the tense that's used, continue, keep on going and progressing into maturity. Now, notice the second phrase here in verse 1, therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity. So, again, who the let us is, I just mentioned it is critical to interpreting the entire section of scripture. The us is not referring to the unsaved, but to those who are saved. He's, re- he's addressing Christians to press on. And so I mentioned that some take this as a war- warning to the lost. Well, number one, the lost aren't gonna be pouring over Hebrews chapter six. He's writing to believers and it's a very serious warning. And again, to come to another conclusion is really to ignore the context, not to mention the 13 let us exhortations found in Hebrews. That would be a great study in and of itself this week. Let us together, both individually and corporately, press on to maturity. When our children were little babies, we did everything for them, but as they began to grow, they began to help us out. That's the way God designed the family they'd help, you know, feed the one that was younger than they. And when you begin to grow up, you begin to help other members of the family. And you should care about that. Why? Because we're members one of another, Paul will say. And a mark that you are maturing is that you're beginning to help other people. And if we're ever to grow up, we have to pursue maturity. But there's a third phrase here, again in verse 1, therefore leaving the elementary teaching. The elementary teaching, we saw last time that that was a phrase that was actually used in language construction, what we might call the letters of the alphabet. Leave the ABCs and move on about the Messiah. Let us press on to maturity, not laying a foundation again. So to have reviewed the fundamentals of the faith all over again would have just left them right where they were, babies. He wants to give them new information, But they can't really receive it in one sense. They need to press on. How do they press on? They obey what they know. You apply what God shows you. So he doesn't want them to keep spinning their wheels. He wants us to move on.
1: To grow physically, we need food, exercise, and we need time. And the same applies to spiritual maturity. Tomorrow, when we continue our message, A Warning Against Growing... Dr. Brogy will move into Hebrews chapter 6 and begin tackling one of the most misunderstood passages in the Bible. If you would like to listen to part 2 of our series, Growing Up in Christ, or if you missed part 1, both can be found on the Search the Scriptures app online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD copy by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program G-I-C-1 or today's message G-I-C-2. Please join us tomorrow as we continue to look at a warning against not growing. We hope to see you then as we continue to search the scriptures.